Hi, I'm Lisa Jackson and I've run 108 marathons and two ultramarathons slower than you. Welcome everybody to another episode of Old Crazy Runners. I am Nicholas, the oldest of the old crazy runners, and I have my cousin Fundy, the craziest of the crazy runners. And you're going to want to stick around for Lisa Jackson, the slowest of the old crazy runners. She has finished more marathons slower than you, including the Comrades. Finishing the Comrades, uh, that is an amazing feat. How long is it? Is it 40 miles? I don't even remember. It's long. Well, I remember she'll get into it. It's way more than a marathon. It's it's not like this massive uh, ultra, but it is an ass kicker of a race. But before that, take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. As always, tell a friend. And if you're so inclined, go by Strava. Join the Old Crazy Runners podcast Strava Run Club. And you know what you're going to see there this week? The sweaty Mark Scott ticked one off of our bucket list this week. Just the other oh, day. I saw that. He ran around Mount Hood. He ran the Timberline Trail, and uh, it had to be hot out there. It doesn't matter if it's hot out there for that guy. The sweaty Scott. <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. I looked at, yeah, that, that was pretty impressive. Um, I think it was like 10,000 feet of yeah. elevation and 42 miles, something like that. Took him 11 hours or something. It was, uh, it was quite the run, yeah. So hats off to you for going out there and getting that done. And, yeah, we still need to keep that on our bucket list. If he's getting out there, we can get out there. Man, if he did it in 11 hours, we got we to gotta up our game. I don't know if I'm ever going to try and outdo that man. You can't out-Scott the Scott? No, you, you, no, you cannot. You can simply try and, and <laughs> meagerly step up to the plate and match that guy in some regard. Oh, man. So I'm so happy that you're going to have a chance to listen to Lisa and talk about the Comrades because the Comrades happened just, I think, a couple weeks ago, last week or a couple weeks ago. And there is a video of Jenna Chally, I think is how you pronounce her last name, who came in fourth in the Comrades, literally by the skin of her teeth. And there's this video. She falls down and just can't get up twice as she's coming into the stadium and while she's in the stadium. Her feet, her legs just gave out. She's smiling. Her eyes look bright. Her legs just literally gave out. I watched that video, and it is really intense because you're absolutely right. It is just the body being worked to its absolute maximum. And uh, the first time she falls, she makes her way over to uh, some sort of signage and, you know, helps herself get up. And then she comes into the stadium and I can only imagine, I mean, she's smiling, like you say, but I mean, she, she turns the corner and it's like, you got another 200 meters at least in that stadium yeah. from when you're not done. No. And so she's running along and then she's what, probably 20 meters from the end. She's close. Oh, yeah, maybe even less than that. It's like, it's like 15, 20 meters. Yeah, she goes down, and it is clear at that point that uh, she may not have it in her to actually get upright again and uh, crawls literally on her hands and knees to the finish. She crawls across the finish line. Well, first two guys try to help her, encourage her. One guy starts to help her up, and the other guy's like, no, you can't fucking Don't, help yeah. her. Don't do you that. Gotta, you got to leave her alone. He's like, oh, yeah. 
Baby and bird she in the nest, man. You can't touch that she shit. probably beat the fifth place finisher by 30, 40 yards, maybe. Like the, that next person was right behind her, coming right in, and she's crawling across the finish line. I didn't see exactly how close she was, other than uh, seeing the uh, just a, juxtaposition of the runner coming into the stadium, and she was just starting to crawl. Yeah, so she was it on had to have been close. Yeah, <laughs> wow, that, and that is fifth, determination. And that next runner was running strong. She wasn't having any problems. Exactly. Well, she was coming in hot. She wasn't gonna. She wasn't gonna crash and burn, but I'm sure she was putting up with an awful lot to finish that. What an amazing effort! Um, so first of all, now I don't think you could ever complain about the last hundred meters you had to run. If you didn't <laughs> nope. collapse. No, nope. and crawl across. I have the nothing. Line. Well, also the fact that I ran, I think, uh, ten or fifteen miles less than she did in the, in the comrades, and, and a lot less elevation. No, you you were fourth place among the five people that were coming across the finish line <laughs> in that last hundred meters. That's closest either one of us is going to get to fourth place. Yeah. But I don't think she didn't dry heave like I did. So, I don't oh, know well, she put yeah, in as much I effort. <laughs> Better, that's a gauge right there. That is just an an amazing output, and it just shows that you know really everything is in the mind up to a certain point. There is absolute a mechanical failure that you can reach. So it is, and uh, I love these stories of human just triumph. Um, so off topic, not a running one. Um, do you remember? The pudgy guy in My Name is Earl. The, um, the brother? Yes, the brother. Ethan okay. Souple. Yes, he was the, uh, one of the linemen in Remember the Titans. Exactly. So that guy uh, got addicted to heroin and cocaine, went up to 550 pounds. Basically, his doctor said, so his, he would get this like swelling and then he would like stop taking drugs and the swelling would go down. But one time that didn't go down, went to the doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, you're, you've got heart failure. You're, you're going to die. Yeah. And uh, completely turned his life around and you wouldn't even recognize him now. Oh, I've he, seen pictures. He is a whole different person. He completely different person. Just buff. He's in uh, what's that new uh, military movie with, um, uh oh crap what's his name the guardians of the galaxy guy oh um shit chris pine you know what i'm talking about yes not chris pine god damn it yeah exactly chris it's a chris by the way this is old crazy runners if anybody was failing to notice i should know that I, i i love that show chris pratt platt pratt pratt yeah chris pratt um so he's in there he's in that movie And uh, if you search YouTube, there's like a 30-minute documentary. And it is insane, the body transformation. And just, you know, he would say, he he basically said, yeah, I hated my life. I had nothing to look forward to. And now he loves his life and have everything to look forward to. And the only thing that's changed is that he just took control of his body and got in shape and recommitted to just taking care of himself. Do you know if he... um... Is he a runner? Does he participate in races or competitions no. at all? No, He's it's, just, all, uh, it's just all about weights. just being healthy. It's just weights and uh, 
not even CrossFit. It's like mostly just weights. Like he's just pushing, pushing the sled with a lot of weight on it, doing deadlifts, squats, just all of that. He did get into cycling for a while. So he's at about 250 right now. He's 550. He got down to 210 in cycling. Doesn't even look, looks like yet another completely different person. Sure. He got so thin. Because he's probably what, like 6'3", 6'3", 210. That's. Yeah. So he's 6'3". He's about 250 now because he's pretty bulked up. And that's kind of, he says that's kind of his weight where where he likes to be. But holy smokes, completely 550. He lost more than himself down to that two. More than himself. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, it does show that, you know, once again, it's, it is about the determination to be able to get out there. And uh, I, I, I find it interesting to look at this in ways of like, you know, how we each turn a corner. Yep. Um, you know, and I... Like really am just starting to feel like I'm kind of past that uh, knee issue from last year that that's really starting mm-hmm. to resolve itself. And the last couple runs have felt really, really great. And it's just makes me now want to get out and do it again. And I can appreciate what it takes to get there. And that feeling once you've kind of started to, you know, you turn that corner, and then there's always another corner. <laughs> there's always another keep one putting corners in our way. We're over 50. Something's going to go awry. (laughs) Well, just the fact that you use the word awry, people know you're over 50. (laughs) Oh, man. In this moment right now, it feels really good, and uh, I'm excited. I want to get out there and and, and run again. So kudos to everybody that, uh, you know, keeps putting the shoes on, lacing them up, and making sure that they're doing their best to be their best person. And you know who loves being their best person is Lisa Jackson. She just reminded us the importance of fun, encouraging each other, being out on the race and enjoying that moment, enjoying the people around her while she's running. She loves to come in last. Well, one of the things that she highlights that uh, I think is incredibly important, like you say, being in the moment and enjoying the course, getting out there and being a part of the experience, uh, talking with the people around you, the, the fellow uh, runners, the people on the course cheering you on, taking that moment, don't being so caught up in setting a PR every single time, Nicholas, that you don't actually... But you got to beat your cousin. That's the <laughs> only rule. I'll tell you what. I, I was looking at, I'm going to deviate for just a second. I was looking at the course and they run you as the half marathon. You get to go through Selwood. And yeah. that was, I think, the best part of the, the marathon. They really encouraged the neighborhoods to come out and cheer you yeah. on. And it really was that moment of connection. So I totally get what she's talking about, especially if you just embrace what it takes to really just slow down and enjoy the whole run. and almost willingly and wantingly come in last place. This is a a really cool conversation. You're going to love what Lisa has to say. Let's get to it. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Nicholas and Fundy. So I like to kick this off uh, in a couple different ways, but for you in particular, I want to start with the first comment you let us know about yourself, which was why you started running. And you'd indicated that at age 29, you were terrified of becoming a permanent couch potato. 
we know that feeling ourselves. It's what brought us to where we are right now. So for us in particular, I want to explore that moment for you and how you utilize that to make a lifelong change. Well, I think, as you as you say, for everyone turning 30 um, is this very significant milestone. And it's part of your life where you think, I can either go on as I've been doing or I can change. And I had um, two very sporty parents who used to knock out a half marathon before breakfast while we were on holiday. And I'd still be asleep, you know, when they came back. And I kind of knew that my dad could still fit into his school blazer. Um, and I certainly couldn't. <laughs> and so um, I, I sort of looked at, ahead of the rest of my life and I just thought, wow, this is a time I need to do something and change. But I'd hated anything to do with sports or activity so much my whole life um, that in the end, it was actually what I least hated was running. I tried aerobics. <laughs> um, I tried going to the gym. You know, I'd obviously been forced into doing things like rounders and swimming at school. Um, and the thing that really kind of inspired me to take up running was my parents taking me to um, a 5K run on a Formula One racetrack when I was 10 years old. And the idea of running on this famous racetrack, because in those days, Jody Schechter was really famous. He was a South African um, Formula One driver. And, you know, running in this iconic place and having a checkered flag wave us across the finish line, you know, really kind of fired up my imagination. And I, I've still got the badge I was given that day. So I kind of went back to that in my mind. And I thought there was something about running that I liked. Um, so I entered a 5K charity race. And um, it was full of pink. Um, which is one of my favorite colors um, and everyone was so supportive instead of being competitive and mm -hmm. making it into something where you could come last just everyone was just cheering everyone else on and that was the start of my journey um, and then a half marathon followed that um, and then the next minute um, I got a place in the London Marathon so I went in about nine months I went from zero to hero. So in nine months you went from not running to completing that marathon? Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing. So my question Thank is, you. <laughs> is uh, how the hell did you do that? Um, well, I did start out with a little bit of walk running with a personal trainer. Um, and then I got terrible shin splints. And it was like a waste of time having a personal trainer because <laughs> I couldn't do anything. Um, but I kind of gradually came back to it. Um, and then I followed um, the Runner's World um, training plan for a half marathon to the letter. I mean, I was, you know, no one's been more religious than me. I've never done anything like that since I, I might add. I'm not very much a person who's very fond of training. I'm only fond of doing um, running when I get a medal at the end of it. Um, but I followed their training plan and I did the Great North Run, which at that time was the world's largest half marathon. And you can imagine, I mean, the atmosphere with, I think it was 40,000 people um, with red arrows, jets flying above us, um, you know, that really gave a flavor of what mass participation running could be. And it's, as you probably know, very addictive. Um, and then I was very lucky because um, a woman at work, I was working on a health magazine at the time, she sort of saw my dedication and going for all these training runs um, at lunchtime and after work. And she became injured and said, I could have a marathon place um, in the London Marathon, which was as then and now extremely difficult to get into. So I got um, her place and uh, my aunt had been trying for six years to get into the marathon. And um, we decided to get her a charity place. So all my fundraising helped my aunt to get a place. So we did it together. So how was it running with 
uh, your aunt in that in that environment, having somebody there with you, did you now start to feel the community that comes with uh, being a runner? Absolutely. I mean, that is to me the entire appeal of running um, is is just spending time with other people. That it brought me so much closer to my aunt. I mean, she was a real character. Um, when my halo fell off um, on the, the iconic bridge that you run across in Newcastle during the half marathon, um, she just like went scrabbling to fetch it. And I was thinking, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and she nearly wiped out about 10 other runners. There was so much swearing going on. Um, and I was just so embarrassed. But anyway, put the halo back on uh, and carried on and finished. Um, but I think um, it was just all the people making comments about my costume, um, having my aunt to chat to the whole way um it was just such a memorable occasion and we were so naive like we didn't know um, anything about running at all like we ran in vests with no jackets um and this is in november next to the north sea um with the only we didn't have any snacks so someone came out and offered us ice lollies and we had no no choice but to accept them because we were honestly so low on blood sugar so we ate them and of course we just became blue with the cold my aunt looked like a little monkey her whole <laughs> like around her mouth which is blue with cold i had to run with my arms um, tucked in under my um my hands tucked in under my armpits and um when we crossed the finish line my aunt was so hypoglycemic and so hypothermic that she couldn't walk in a straight line so we looked like we were two tipsy old ladies um as we walked you know to go and get our, our baggage um but it was such a wonderful introduction um to running and because it's such an iconic event um and so you know it was very very addictive and I'd like to go back a little bit and have you talk about how important it was with that first 5K to be cheered on, because I think that's not only important for new mm-hmm. runners out there that are you know scared to join their first 5K, but it's also important for us who've been running a long time to remember to stick around and cheer on the people that are coming in behind us. You know, I, I can't agree more. Um and there was a debate once in my new club, the 100 Marathon Club, you know, about whether people who've done 50 marathons should be given a medal or given any kind of recognition. And a lot of people said no. They said, you know, you don't get a medal halfway through a marathon. And I kind of just thought, well, you do get cheered. And <laughs> I don't think anyone who's running a marathon or an event turns around to the spectators and said, I wish you bloody shut up. So I think, you know, and having also spoken quite a lot to Dave Weir, who is um, a British uh, wheelchair athlete who's won more gold medals in the Paralympics than than most. Um, And he just said how much the crowd support um, in the Olympic Stadium meant to him. He said it was like a jumbo jet in his ears and it just spurred him on to win four gold marathons in 2012. So even elite athletes thrive on on cheering. And I must say, um, I actually hate going and attending well, I've done a lot of spectating at marathons and also marshalling because I always come home with, with having lost my voice, which is a bit dangerous since I'm a hypnotherapist. <laughs> <laughs> but I've shouted so much and screamed so much. And I, t- I totally agree with you that, um, you know, staying behind, and I, I often do that. Um, it doesn't take me long because usually I'm the last person. But if there, if I'm not the last person, I would always make sure I stay till the very end um, to cheer, you know, the last finisher across the line. Actually, I, I want to stop on that before I go to my point, because um, Fundy, you and I need to make um, a concerted effort, at least this year as races come back for the ones that we're not participating in, that we just go out and be a part of that community. Because I've done it a couple of times. I was there for your first half marathon. Yeah. 
I went to a friend's marathon and I always forget until I get there how uh, uplifting it is as a spectator to be yeah. a part of that moment as well. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to participate to help and we don't have to participate to be participating. And uh, that is really, really important. I, I uh, really appreciate you bring that up because that is also what's uh, motivated me. And before I go too far down the path, I got to get in the race where I get a checkered flag. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, actually, there is one in this country called the Silverstone um, Half Marathon, and that is on a, um, a racetrack. Now, I haven't actually run that one, so I don't know if they give you the checkered flag treatment, but it's definitely on a Formula One track, so you do have that chance. <laughs> well, we have a Portland International Raceway here in town, so we got to make some calls. Uh, funny <laughs> make sure they, that They're missing the boat on this one. All right, so yeah, it's such a lovely idea, isn't it? Uh, it, it is. It's a great. Idea. And the spraying the champagne. You better add that bit in as well. Oh, man. Oh, see, you're yeah. missing out. Just keeps getting better and better. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so I have a couple serious notes that I want to kind of wrap together here. So the first one is you'd mentioned that growing up, you, you, you just hated sports. They didn't really resonate with you. And um, your follow-up comment that was around competition. I'm really curious with running, with that it was the loss the lack of competition that was because that was there, that would, that allowed you to embrace it in the way that you did. Is that, is that a fair way to look at it? That that was an important component that the competition had been eliminated. Yeah, absolutely. Because I don't think anyone likes being made to feel like a loser. And, you know, that was my greatest fear actually coming last. My aunt and I used to always say, you know, just plodding along. And then we'd say, well, just as long as we don't come last, you know, everything will be fine as long as we don't come last. And then one day, blow me down, my aunt wasn't there. I did come last. And it wasn't a disgrace. It was right. actually fantastic. You know, everyone stopped what they were doing. All the people packing up just stopped. I had this whole circle of um, volunteers and marshals and everything just cheering me in and slapping me on the back. And you get extra goodie bags because there's some left over. So you get <laughs> quite a few. And everyone just thinks you're amazing for sticking it out. Um, and so that fear just evaporated for me after that. Um, you see, I come from South Africa. And in South Africa, um, you know, running is a very competitive activity um so my father for example said to me when i did comrades which is a 56 mile ultra he said you know don't do fancy dress this is not some kind of carnival and he's really you know dismissive of fancy dress because and and most people in south africa are like you're not going to find too many rhinos or wombles or um, in my case flamingos um out on the course mm -hmm. um but i just think that that kind of competitive um like making the, the fact that running for them is only about competition means it excludes so many people who could get so much joy out of it. And so I always say to people, you know, rate a race according to, you know, how many friends you made, how many, what beautiful scenery you saw, mm. um, or, you know, just how you felt um, as opposed to just what time you did, because then everyone, every race has got PB potential. You know, it's your personal best race for scenery or friends or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think competition is fantastic. I mean, honestly, I was there the day that, uh, you know, I was a spectator the day that Paula Radcliffe broke the world record, etc. I mean, the thrill of being there is amazing. I went to the Olympics and I, I shouted so loudly for some Canadian runners that I think I, I damaged their chances. They got such a fright. <laughs> I was screaming so loud for Canada. They think why is the South African woman screaming like a banshee for Canada? But it was because my friend is Canadian. Um, so I think, um, you know, competition is beautiful and wonderful, but I just think 
there, you know, there's only one winner in a race and there's perhaps 40,000 people behind that person. Um, and I think we can all get so much out of it and it doesn't really matter. You know, I always, my, my catchphrase is it, it's not about the time you do, but about the time you have. That's a great catchphrase. <laughs> I got to write that one down after I get this next one out. Oh, so thank gonna, you. <laughs> uh, I do want to get a little personal because we run into this often with a lot of our um, guests that weren't uh, athletic or involved in sports and then got into running later in life. And it's the unwillingness uh, as the, for the individual to consider themselves an athlete. So for you, I'm curious, do you consider yourself an athlete? And if so, or if not, you know, why not? And when did that come into play? Because I do, seriously, you are definitely an athlete without question. Do you see yourself that way? I think the word athlete um, does sort of make me smile a bit because that was my dad. I mean, my dad was a cross-country champion mm -hmm. at university. You know, there's still photos of him, you know, striding forth. I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure I'm in that league. Um, but runner, yes. Like, I don't ever want to be called a jogger. And I find the people who try and sit in judgment on people and kind of go, you know, this is my definition of a runner. Like, if you can't run a sub nine minute mile or, you know, they've got some kind of little criteria, like a sub four hour marathon, whatever, they make up some number or something. And then they tell you, often it's actually people who don't run at all who <laughs> come up with these things. <laughs> and then they say, you can't call yourself a runner. And I think that I find that really infuriating and I will fight, you know, to the death um, to be called a runner, not a jogger. Um, athlete, I think is a bit, a bit um, out of my league. Uh, but I think it's important that we identify ourselves as runners because at the end of the day, we cover the same ground. So the person who runs a two-hour marathon has covered exactly the same distance as a person who runs an eight-hour marathon. Um, and so they deserve the kudos um, for doing that. And often, you know, I've heard from people who are fast runners who've been forced due to injury or because they've become a pacer to run at a slower pace. The agony of being in their feet on their feet for a lot longer. Um, that has given them such new respect for slow runners. So, um, yeah, I, I did call myself a runner, but I, I really wouldn't say athlete. Not even, not even as my personal best time, um, because it was, you know, it wasn't really gazelle-like. <laughs> well, I think you know we can define an athlete as someone who engages in an athletic pursuit, and I think that you definitely qualify there. You know, well, thank you. I love. It. I'm now going to start calling myself an athlete, thanks to you guys. <laughs> but I think that's the thing. My record speaks for itself. You know, I've got a plaque in my garden that sort of, you know, memorializes the fact that I'm a chat runner and I'm a comrades finisher. Um, and those two things aren't mutually exclusive. I have chatted my way through every ultra I've done. I've chatted my way through every marathon, um, and I've had you know a real blast um, doing it. So I have a question with, you know, having done 108 marathons, you probably have a little bit to say about that distance as well as the ultras. Uh, you know, I find uh, myself as I get older, more and more attractive to the longer distance. And I think one of the reasons is, especially these longer distances with elevation, things that are just stupid where you can't really strive to towards a particular pace, that as we go to these longer runs, harder runs, that just finishing is winning absolutely i mean i've done you know when i when i count my ultras i've, I've actually done more than two ultras um because the third time i did comrades i didn't finish it so i didn't that didn't i didn't count couldn't count as, as one of them 
Um, and I have to say that um, that kind of distance now just feels like really impossible. I mean, obviously it isn't because if I put my mind to it again, I could. Um, but, you know, ultras, it, it's such a mental game. My friend has a lovely expression. She says ultras are 90% mental and the other 10% is mental too. So it is a <laughs> massive, massive mind game that you are just playing with yourself every step of the way. The conversations, like I think one day it would be so interesting to just talk the whole way through an ultra, just a solo, you know, a soliloquy about the thoughts that go through your mind, like after one step. I don't want to do this. I don't know why I signed up. You know, it just starts like that. And it doesn't matter where in the race you are. You're always battling yourself, fighting with yourself, suddenly feeling a bit better and then thinking this isn't going to last and then it doesn't. So, yeah, I think anyone who can finish an ultra is absolutely amazing. And, I mean, you know, people laugh about them and call them a you know, picnic with a bit of running thrown in because you do do quite a lot of snacking. And uh, a man asked during Comrades whether he could take a photo of my bottom. And when I said why, he said, I'm not being weird, but I've never seen a running tuck shop before. And I had a gel belt that had all these chocolate bars and dried biltong, oh. which is like your beef jerky and everything stuffed into it. And he thought it was so funny he had to take a photo. Um, so there is a lot of you know camaraderie. There is a lot of walking. There is a lot of eating that goes on. But at the end of the day, nothing can deny the fact that you have you know, gone beyond well, normal, modern man's boundaries of what's what's normal <laughs> and what's possible. And before we move on, can you tell people about the comrades? Because it's not just a race. Most of our listeners are in the U.S., so they're probably not that familiar with mm. it. I mean, the comrades is basically the Super Bowl for South Africa, right? That's a great description. That really is. Um, I think you know about Yeso. I had the privilege of running um, is the runner's world um, chief running officer for America. And um, I had the privilege of running the Jerusalem Marathon with him a few years ago. And I asked him, what's your favorite race? And without, and he's done over a thousand races. And he just said, without a blinking or pausing, he said, comrades. And I said, you're a man of your own heart. Yeah, it's a very iconic race in South Africa. It's televised, um, you know, live the whole day. So in the old days, you had 11 hours to finish it. Um, now you've got 12. Um, and it's run between the cities of Durban by the sea and uh, Peter Maritzburg in the interior, which is quite uh, an elevation, you know, it's quite a high place um, to run up to. Um, every every year the, the, um, the distance is slightly different, weirdly, um, and also um, it's running a different direction. So one year it will be Durban to Maritzburg, the next year it will be Maritzburg to Durban. Um, the, the course is around 89 to 91 kilometres long. So that's about 56 miles. Um, and it is lined the entire way with spectators who come out with their barbecues, their beers, uh, and their cheering voices and their massage bombs. So you will find a massage anywhere you like. You'll find yeah. someone willing to give you a massage, which is just so weird. Um, and it's just a glorious day. Um, it's It's been kind of, it was it was held in, in memory of um, soldiers who were killed in the First World War. That's where the comrades name comes from. But over the years, um, especially during the apartheid years, um, it was a time when blacks and whites came together, um, you know, on equal terms. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just the most beautiful experience. It runs through the Valley of Thousand Hills. So the scenery is, is magnificent as well. Um, it's obviously a very, very big challenge. And um, they have a ruthless policy at the end that even if you're one second late after the gun's gone off you you don't get a medal um or a time or anything um so 
it, growing up, I'd watch this on television. I'd watched Bruce Fordyce um, win it nine times, this little student, blonde head student from uh, University of Witwatersrand. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously, as someone who wasn't sports, who wasn't interested in sports at all, it just sort of set, you know, seeped into my consciousness that this was an amazing thing to do. And it was one of those like impossible dreams. I mean, it was to me about as unlikely as saying I want to become an astronaut, uh, you know, living in South Africa, not living in Florida. Um, and then one day I just just decided as a, as a grown up that I could make my own choices and I was going to do it. And that's the lovely thing about running. No one needs mm -hmm. to give you permission, no matter how unlikely you do. You know, if I wanted to be an astronaut, I probably would have fallen, you know, at the first hurdle. If they said, do you like speed? And I say no. And they say, OK, fine, you know leave the room but with anything like these things we do ultras or marathons the wonderful thing is you decide if you if you meet the selection criteria and i decided that i did <laughs> so I, I again it was a huge uh, thing for me i had to take maybe an hour and a quarter of my average marathon time just to qualify um but it's still um sadly my mother didn't live to see the day that i did it but you know, it's still one of the biggest achievements, you know, of my life. I'll never, ever forget it. And the, the lovely thing was the adverts for Comrades um, were, they were really, I mean, spine-tingling kind of chariots of fire-esque music. And it said at the end, it said, Comrades, it will define you. And I have to say, I think Comrades did define me. And um, I've now, you know, there's no goal in life, if I really want it, that I don't think I can achieve after having done that. And Nicholas, you'll love how strict they are. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I was just reading about it. At Comrades, when that 12-hour 12 12 mark hits, the race organizers line the finish line with their backs to the runners. That's right. The man walks out with the gun, and he turns his back on the runners, and then he shoots it. And then a row of officials runs across the finish line with the tape, and you can't cross it. So they won't, they won't even let you step over it. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's so dramatic. I mean, I've, I had both times I did it successfully. I was there for the last 15 minutes, hitting the metal hoarding, screaming my lungs out. I mean, everyone is willing. I promise you, if you could personally have dragged those people across the finish line from the sidelines, you would, but you're not allowed to. And um, there's a whole rule about helping people. Uh, but, but the screaming that goes on to try and will those people, and people are crawling, people are hobbling. Um, in the old days, people did carry other people across the finish line, but they've, they've kind of banned that now. But it, it's such a dramatic moment. It's just unbelievable. So to bring this full circle, that is an incredibly competitive moment that you just <laughs> elevated as something so affirming for yourself here. So I, I think you may have found where competition fits for yourself in all of this. Do you know, I've kind of always thinking about this, like, am I a competitive person or not? And the funny thing is I'm only competitive if I think I've got a chance. If I don't think I've got a chance, then I just go along for the ride. So, yeah, I mean, finishing that was it was a competition against myself i mean obviously exactly. people say where did you come in that race um i think there were seventeen thousand people that did comrades the year i did and i probably came you know sixteen thousand nine hundred and fifty or something um but yeah i think i do have a competitive streak like when i wanted to join the 100 marathon club you know no one was going to stop me and yeah. um i did try and introduce a level, new level of competition in the club actually because i said could they give an award because you get different awards for who did it in the shortest period of time went from you know no marathons to 100 um there's lots of different you know who's running all the american states for example they run a marathon in every state there's lots of different awards within the club and i said well how about one for 
the person who's taken the longest time, as in each adding up the the duration of each marathon um, and, and say, you know, to get to 100 marathons. Well, they said, no, Lisa, because this is before I got into the club. They said, no, we know what you're like. You just sit in the middle of the course <laughs> and wait till you can add extra time, you know, to the end of every one of your marathons. I was thinking, yeah, probably would. So that's how competitive I am. I would be quite happy to sit in the middle of a marathon and sit down for half an hour, just make sure that my time was longer than anyone else's. Well, and that's what we love about running as well is recognizing that it is all about competing against yourself and your goals and your interests. Um, and the beauty of being able to get into a race and still maintain that it's just about what you're doing. Unless, of course, it's the comrades, in which case you are still fighting a, a gun and a bunch of jackasses the one that turn their back on people that are just struggling to finish. I. I love it and hate it at the same time. I love your I love your indignation, but it is part of the drama, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's just part of the it's part of the the kind of ethos of the race. But I, I mean, it's not a nice thing to watch. I'll be honest with you; it's quite upsetting. And yet, it's what makes that race that race. And going back to the beauty of all of this is just enjoying it for what it is, even if it's uh, at points gut wrenching. It's very gut-wrenchy, I can tell you, <laughs> because there's five big heels in it. They call them the big five. Um, and, I mean, some of them, I remember at one point in Changa, I was running, and then I looked up, and, and there were people in the sky. There were runners in the sky. And I just thought, God, Lisa, never look up again. Just look at what your own feet are doing and do not think what's coming up. Because, you know, it's, that was the joke about Heartbreak Hill um, when I did Boston was I met a British runner who'd come to spectate. I'd met her at another race. I'd run Chicago with her. And um, she walked me up the race. I was walking at this point. It was pouring with rain. And then after a while I said, well, where's Heartbreak Hill? And she said, honey, you've already done it. And I just couldn't believe it because, <laughs> you know, compared to the comrades, like Heartbreak Hill is literally like walking – taking a step up onto the sidewalk. I mean, it's just nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, and there's some horrendous parts of, of comrades. And then also the hills coming down into Durban, for example, you know, grown men have been known to cry and just hang on to the crash barriers because the pain in their quads is so bad. But actually I did a lot of um, leg strengthening work just to avoid that exact scenario. And so I actually flew down the hill. I mean, I wasn't in any pain whatsoever, uh, but there were men sobbing, um, you know, at the side of the road. But they'd run faster than me, I will say that. They probably hammered their quads a bit harder than mine, than I did mine. <laughs> well, we have a, uh, a big race coming up this summer, nothing like what the Comrades is all about. And it's got a significant climb to begin. And I've been saying all along, I'm not worried about that climb at the beginning i'm worried about coming back down that slope on the last five miles when i'm blown up and then it's really gonna hurt it can it really can but i will say you know squats and lunges um i just did that like a lot and and it really it, it made a big difference and my husband didn't do it like my husband was kind of bullied into doing comrades because he got so tired of spectating. It's a horrible race to spectate because you end up, you know, in the middle of nowhere, standing there for six hours, and you can't get away. Once you've spectated, you can't get back. It's, it's really quite hard because all the roads are closed off. And my husband said he hates spectating so much that he was going to do comrades. <laughs> and I said to him, if you say that one more time, I'm going to hold you to it because I'm a woman of my word. And, and then he did say it again, and then I said, fine, you're doing it. And he did comrades without doing 
um, quite as much training as me and without, because he thought if Lisa can do it, anyone can. <laughs> like yeah. he didn't have, Famous he really, <laughs> yeah, he's just kind of, you know, he knows me well and he, he just thought, no, come on, it can't be that bad. And then he he really struggled on the on the downs. Um, so he's done the up and the down. Funny enough, I've only successfully done the down um, twice um, because they, for one year, it was the year of the World Cup, they decided not to uh, reverse the, the race. So I've only done two downs. Um, but he's done both and he says that the down is much harder believe it or not yeah Yeah. now i i I totally believe that so just to clarify the direction they choose that year is going to indicate whether it's primarily uphill or primarily downhill um that's correct although each of them has lots of ups and downs so you can't say the down is just down and the up is just up it isn't like that um but gee when i did the up which is the year that i failed um to finish um i didn't fail I, i really would never say that. Um, but I fell, I tripped because you start in the dark at five in the morning and there are all these cat's eyes in the middle of the road, those reflective cat's eyes. And my husband, the last word he said to me before I started that race was don't trip on a cat's eye because the year before a runner had tripped on one and he's, he scraped the back of my back with his fingers as he came down, but he didn't take me down. So I knew the danger of tripping and I just didn't see it. So I came down and I came on really heavy on my arm, my elbow, so I had to run with my my hand sort of hanging onto my sports bra with blood just dripping, literally dripping. And I put a plaster on, it just dripped right back off. Um, and I really, I was going to pull out, but I just thought, gee, you know, I've only done one kilometer of this race. Um, so I kept on going. And in the end, um, I waited till they pulled me off the course. So that was at 78 kilometers. So I was really proud of myself that I, you know, I did my best. Um, but what a different race. I mean, it's completely, you know, doing a different direction. It's like doing two mar- uphill marathons and then the last little bit at the end. So um, it's, I would say it's much tougher to do so much up, up running. But, you know, everyone, you won't find anyone agrees on this. Everyone says different things. Well, you just won the athlete award with the I fell within the first kilometer and ran the rest of the way holding my arm as it bled. <laughs> While bleeding. While bleeding. Well, oh, thank you. That's really kind. <laughs> Actually, my arm didn't recover for two years. I couldn't raise it higher than my shoulder than shoulder height for two years. That's how badly I hurt my arm. Um, but, you know, it's the atmosphere of people. I mean, two hands just came through my, my arms and just pushed me onto my feet. I mean, if they hadn't done that, I would have literally been trampled. I mean, that's the spirit of comrades is mm-hmm. people help you. Everyone is there to help you. And people were even telling me I could finish, even when I knew damn well I couldn't. And I was just going to continue until the marshals pulled me off the course. Still, the spectators were screaming, you know, you can still make it. Just keep going. Can we give you a massage? You know, do you want to eat some bourrevors, which is sausage, you know, the side of the road from their barbecues. So it's the, the atmosphere, you know, it's almost like in the end, I just decided to treat it as a day out in beautiful countryside. Um, and I kept hoping they'd kick me off the course earlier. Like every time I came to one of the cutoff points, because there's several along the road, I thought, okay, maybe now they'll they'll let me stop running. And then every time I, I made the cutoff by one or two minutes, so I had to keep going. So you still ran 78 kilometers, right? Yeah, it was very funny near the end because with, um, with blood, I had a, with blood, yeah, Kate's wife, me, because there was a whole cavalcade of ambulances and you know cars and policemen, police cars and everything, and they all just formed up behind me. So I had literally about 26 of these flashing all their blue lights with this one guy like cruising next to me. It was really lovely. A policeman telling me, I think you're an amazing lady, which was really encouraging. And then the next minute, a marshal jumped out and said, 
you have to get off the course. It's the race is over. And I knew he was, you know, it was 12 hours was up. And I said, no, that's fine. But in South Africa, we use the word no like that, like quite, a, it's, it doesn't really mean no. I was just saying, yeah, that's fine. Like, no, man, yeah, man, that's fine. And he said, no, lady, I have to tell you now, you have to get in my car right this minute. It's very dangerous for you to be out here. It's getting dark. I said, no, I'm, I'm going, I'm going. And they put me in the, in the, what they call the bail bus. And then there was a 60-year-old man in front of us who hadn't been stopped by the marshals. And unless you stopped by a marshal, the police didn't have any jurisdiction over taking him off the course. And he insisted on finishing. So we sat in that car for two hours going at a 60-year-old's pace all the way to the finish. They wouldn't give me a space blanket because they said to me, we might need it for someone else. And I didn't have the, I was so doolally at that point. I didn't say, just give it to me. And if anyone needs it more than me, they can have it. And they wouldn't let me phone my family. And I was just like, listen, they are going to think I'm in a ditch at the side of the road. <laughs> Eventually they said, okay, phone your family. I told them I was coming. And when I finally got into um, the Finnish arena, I got out the, the car and um, I just, collapsed I completely passed out and I remember just I got I went to a desert island for a few minutes and I just was lying there in the sunshine it was so weird and then I came back and I just saw this circle of ankles around me and I was eating the grass I was just lying face down and I was put in the tent and they threatened me with a drip and I just said listen I was so lucky because I was much older than the medic who was attending me and I said to him young man there is no way after everything I've gone through today which has been hell that you're doing my biggest fear which is to have a drip like I'm not having that on top of everything and he said to me yeah well, if you drink 10 cups of cool drink and you show me your kidneys are working you can go so I started drinking cool drinks and there were people next to me that looked like they died already I mean it was it was horrific in this medical tent and I went to the toilet and I passed out again in the toilet but I didn't tell him and then I just came back and I drank about the five cups of, of cool drink and then he said you can go um so that's how I survived comrades without um being dripped as I call it uh, well, I would like to say once again, you've earned your athlete badge. Oh, um, I'm, oh this is so refused. wonderful. I'm definitely going to put this on my tombstone now. Any, any, anytime you pass out in a toilet and refuse to tell somebody <laughs> because you don't want the medic to find out, is, that's an athlete badge. And, and I'm going to one-up that. So I'm going to, we don't have a medal, but I'm going to give her an official old crazy runners, badass athlete award. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Well, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book um, is saying, you know, how wonderful running is that you can just take these, like, it's almost like going to a sweet shop and deciding what labels do you want. And I sort of decided I wanted the label marathon runner. And so I took it and then I took, you know, ultra runner and then I took uh, triathletes even. Um, and now I'm going to take athletes as well. So thank you. You, you said triathlete. So have, have you finished um, a triathlon? Yeah, I've done a few. Um, I've done even an Olympic <laughs> distance one. Um, but the Olympic one, um, it was in the Docklands in London. And the water is the color of Coca-Cola. And it's freezing. It's like a glass of iced Coca-Cola. And when I got in the water, I, I virtually had a panic attack. And they had these little kayaks to obviously stop you drowning. And But if you touch the kayak as a swimmer, you're disqualified. And I, within seconds, it was just like, where's the kayak? Where's the kayak? And then I just thought, Lisa, if I paid a fortune to enter this race, and I just thought, you can't, you can't pay. I think it, well, to me, it was a fortune, like 65 pounds for one minute in freezing cold water. So I started swimming. And the thing that kept me going was I'd seen this wonderful Asian noodle stand inside 
the um, the building next to it. And so I started swimming and my every stroke was noodles and beer, noodles and beer. <laughs> and in the end, I got into a real stroke. Like it was amazing, even though the water was making me claustrophobic because I couldn't see through it. Um, and I didn't want it to end. By the time the swimming, you know, was over, I was sad to see it go. And and I'd really thought of pulling out, pulling out at the beginning. Um, and then, yeah, I did the, you know, the rest of it. Um, you know, not not fast or anything, but it was a really wonderful um, experience. And uh, since we've covered marathons, ultra marathons, uh, triathlon, a, a very important question that Nicholas and I always uh, love to ask because we're uh, kind of affiasiandos. I said that wrong. Uh, but <laughs> what what is your favorite medal from all of those? Well, you know, actually, it is one you'll be glad to know from um, America because I did um, the Fort Lauderdale Marathon. And I don't know if you know, but they have these dinner plate size medals. And their, their medal, I'm just looking at it now, it had all these little charms hanging off it with a seahorse and a, a shell and various things. And um, when you wear it, it just clanks and you sound like, um, you know, Mr. T from the 18. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it's just like, the most badass, like over the top, only in America medal. And the man who um, came to support me on the course, I, did, I didn't know him before, but he was this man, he was a triathlete and um, he'd been bitten by his cat and nearly died of sepsis um, only two months before. So this was his first kind of day out. He came out on his bike to support runners and in the end, he ended up doing most of the marathon with me. So I called him my bodyguard on a bike. And um, he was just so amazing, telling me stories, asking people to get out of my way because I was so slow and there were so few marathon participants in that marathon. Most people do the half. So it was very hot. There weren't you know, many other runners out on the course. And when we got to the end and I got this medal and we went and had a beer together with my husband, he just said, that medal is obscene. Like he, he just thought it was like, because he's a triathlete, and I think they do like things like, like very kind of formally and very in a pure way, you know, their medals would be, you know, a normal size. And he, he just couldn't believe that any race could have a medal like that. But I just love it. And to me, it's just, it sort of epitomizes, you know, just the fun of marathons. I think people often think they're so serious and, it's all about being grueling and all that kind of thing. And actually, there's just a side to it. I mean, in this country, there's people, there's two race organizers, and they're always trying to get bigger medals. And they literally now are getting medals that are half a meter in, di in diameter. I mean, it's just crazy. You know what I mean? I just, I just love it. I just love, like, bigger is better. And, and also, you know, I've got a fantastic medal collection because, um, yeah, people put a lot of effort into the design of them now. Um, and so often I'll actually do a marathon just because I like the medal and I won't do a marathon. If I don't like the medal. <laughs> oh, you're right in our vein. That's exactly our thought process. As we well. will send you a free registration. You'll have to get some friends to do it, but over the summer you just log your miles and you can get an official old crazy runners beer medal. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. I, yeah. I've done a wine run. I've not done a beer run. I'll definitely do it. I'll definitely well, do it. You don't, because you don't I actually have to think... drink beer until after, but this is, it's, oh, right. it's team. It's over <laughs> the whole summer. You just log your miles for a grand total of miles. I'd so. love to do that. Honestly, yeah. I will. Because I did a virtual comrades last year because of the lockdown and I got all my neighbors involved. And it was so nice because they'd always heard about comrades and to able to say, and Catherine Switzer did it as well. Nice. And so I, I sort of rounded up and my dad did it in South Africa. So we all did this virtual comrades together. And, you know, it's been, we're going to have a medal ceremony actually um, for my neighbors because we haven't been able to properly get together because of lockdown. 
Um, but um, I love virtual races and I, I love the idea of that. Definitely, you'll see my, you'll find my name in your postcard. <laughs> well, you'll appreciate this. We, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the beer scene in Oregon. We kind of lead the world in micro breweries. And so this virtual run will take you around the state of Oregon to 20 of our favorite breweries, which is just a fraction of what we have. Uh, so it's 1,500 miles total, and you run 1,500? Do you see? I love the way you left that. That's a last. <laughs> Here I am, completely committed. And then you say, I know, yeah. I, I, know I don't have to do it all in one go, but still. No, no, no. You, you, you have three months. You only have to do 500. No, it's, it's a team event as well. We'll get you involved with uh, all your, your favorite running crew. And uh, you just accumulate your miles. And then when you get to a brewery, we'll send you an email with our recommended beer from that local brewery and uh, we might uh share those with you because you've just oh. acknowledged you are a, you're a huge beer fan so you're gonna love this i do love beer you know i love things like this i love the way there's there's actually a race i want to do called the camino which is this pilgrimage route in spain and apparently it's a virtual one as well but you sign up and every time you get to a spot they then send you photos of what you would have seen if you were actually there in real life yeah. and this kind of idea this is to me it's just taking you know, running to a new level, like those, that fun element of, I don't know, just, just mixing in other things like sights you see or beers to taste or whatever. I just think it's wonderful. Yeah. And that was what we embraced through the lockdown as well. And the transition to virtual runs as painful as it was to lose the in-person and, and, you know, definitely want to get that back, really learned how to embrace that runs like this bring something um, worth some worthiness to our daily grind for our training runs for something else. And then it, we're all just slowly accumulating it. And it's amazing how all of a sudden now I want to run that three miles because I'm just that much closer to that silly little goal <laughs> virtually it just brings a little bit more to it. I have to say to you, cause it's very, very hard to stay motivated. I will say, and I, I remember someone saying to me, enjoy the journey on the way to the 100 marathon club and i was thinking well come on i don't want the journey i want the t-shirt and actually <laughs> once i had the t-shirt it was just like oh god i know what they were they meant now because i hate motorway driving and yet i would get up at four in the morning and drive on the motorway and then realize i didn't know how to use my car's um, windscreen wipers or defogger and think i'm going to die today trying to do this marathon and i won't even have got, i won't now die before i've even got to the race i mean that's how a goal just powers you forward and i think if you don't have that um it's very hard especially if you don't have people you know because people obviously make me want to run so if you can't spend time with people you have to have something else and i think that's an absolutely a marvelous idea one of my favorite sayings is fall in love with the process not the goal that is so true that is no it's so true i mean Honestly, I have to say, you know, that when I was doing my last few marathons, they said, you're in the nervous 90s now, Lisa, you know, and the process of, yeah, all the people I met, you know, I, you know, flying out to run the 261 marathon in Mallorca, you know, with Catherine, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there was just, I didn't mind how much money I spent. I didn't mind how inconvenient it was. I just did those things. And, and the process was so much fun. And I look back, you know, my husband and I, we just look back and we think, do we regret any of this? And I saw so many different countries. I ran in 22 different countries. I've seen parts of the UK that I would never have seen um, because, I, you know, you just think, oh, you go everywhere but on motorways. And so I've done these wonderful trail marathons. Um, so 
oh, it's just opened my eyes to so much beauty, you know, and excitement and new people. I mean, and you obviously, you know, sound like the kind of people who also, you know, collect people. Um, And that's what I really have collected. You know, I haven't just got a medal collection. I've got a friend collection from Mm -hmm. from running. So you've uh, casually mentioned you ran Boston and you ran (laughs) London and then you just threw in New York. So I've as far as I can tell, you're you're halfway to your Abbots. Are you are you working on an Abbots medal? Um, you know what? I actually would never qualify for that because I think I did London too long ago. Um, the only one I'm missing actually is Tokyo. Okay, so, so you, I, ha- I have done Chicago. Berlin and Chicago. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that's that's another goal that a lot of people, you know, have. Um, which is lovely. I mean, I just think anything where you can make a little collection. Mm-hmm. Um of things is is fantastic well apparently it's a huge medal the, the tokyo one no the abbott's medal oh the actual abbott's actual medal yeah yeah yeah, yeah. ah uh, wow <laughs> then maybe i should go to tokyo <laughs> but they actually i think they do have a cutoff actually of when you did your they have to be within a certain time frame i think when i looked into it once yeah um, I, I don't so know. maybe my my you know first london didn't count oh well it counts in your heart yeah, no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> One thing I want to get into here is your work with hypnotherapy for mm. sports for performance for other people, how you're helping other people reach their goals through hypnotherapy and kind of describe that because I think that most people out there have a uh, unreal, unrealistic view of what actually hypnotherapy actually is. Yeah, well, I can understand that because it would be very boring to film um, the hypnosis part of a hypnotherapy session because the person just sits in a chair with their eyes closed and their hands on their knees. Um, but actually, um, hypnosis is a very, very powerful tool. And I actually used it um, to finish comrades because um, when I told someone in my running club that he asked me what I was training for, and I said comrades, and I said, believe it or not, comrades, because I was the slowest member of my running club. And this person just snorted um, and I, I and didn't say anything else. And I just went home that after that training run and I cried for three hours and I felt so ashamed that I'd sort of, I thought it was like big jaw, you know, I'd, I'd kind of said something and I was boasting about something that I would never achieve and everyone was laughing at me behind my back. And I, I just actually stopped training for two weeks. I couldn't do any more training for comrades because I was so broken by that. Um, and then I suddenly remembered I'm a hypnotherapist. <laughs> Sometimes it takes a while. And it's like, well, what do you do with people who lack self-belief and confidence, etc.? cetera? Um, and so I went on YouTube and I saw some videos of people finishing comrades and many of them were 10, 20, 30 years older than me. And they were finishing over the arms in the air. Um, and I just thought, that's going to be me and I started doing self-hypnosis on myself every night uh, and just picturing myself like really like smelling the crushed grass underfoot because I knew it would finish on a grass track I'm hearing that hammering of the 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 metal hoardings the crowd screaming I I thought of course I was going to come last so they would all be screaming go 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 and there'd be a man coming out with the gun but I didn't try and imagine that but I kind of tried to leave that out but I, I just wanted to imagine myself with feelings of elation and successfully doing it. And obviously that really did help me. It gave me back my self-belief. I started training again and I finished it, you know, as I said, twice. Um, so with hip- hypnotherapy, um, the person is just spoken to in a low, so soft, 
hypnotic voice. Um, and in that state, which is just like daydreaming, so everyone goes into hypnotic states all the time. If you stare out the window for a while, you're in a hypnotic state. The state between when you're just about to fall asleep at night or when you just wake up in the morning, halfway between waking and sleeping, that's hypnosis. And in that state, um, you're more suggestible. So if someone is to make is going to make suggestions to you that are things you want, like you will finish comrades, um, your unconscious mind is more likely to accept those suggestions and then you act on them in real life. So we're working here on an unconscious level. And the interesting thing is that um, the conscious mind is critical and judgmental all the time. So it's constantly evaluating information for truth. But the unconscious mind is uncritical and it doesn't do that. So if you think about watching a scary movie, you know, your heart rate will go up, your palms will sweat, even though you know that you're in your safe living room. So it takes things at face value. So that's why when you make suggestions to someone and tell them that they can achieve the goals that they want to achieve or whatever they've asked you to help them with, uh, the athletes, you know, getting through like the wall or, um, you know, not bonking and when you're doing, um, uh, cycling, um, the unconscious mind accepts that at face value and it actually becomes a reality um, often for people. So it's wonderful work to do. And I think, um, you know, that's the final frontier in sport um, is sports psychology. You know, if you're looking for another marginal gain, that's often uh, the only area you can really still look to um, to work in because we've fixed everything else. And it's an area that's getting. Um some very renewed focus. I mean, mental functions within sport, that's been around since sport, but I think it had been uh, a blunt instrument, I guess, as a description uh, until fairly recently where work such as yourself has started to actually identify what does work. It's not just what you say, it's when you say it, it's how you say it. Uh, We had a chance to speak with Amanda Fu Ryland and she has a background with this as well. And she talks about the importance of the holistic aspect of bringing the mentality into all of this. And uh, it really is an important part, especially as a runner and especially as a long distance and ultra runner, because you, the mental acuity is so much a part of what makes you finish those races. No, absolutely. I mean, it is, it is just huge. And it's so interesting that you know, even someone like Paula Ratcliffe had to have mental tricks to get her through. So she would count to 300 every mile, you know, and I just find that so interesting because she's someone who obviously loves running. I mean, I'm someone who finds running incredibly challenging. Um, so, you know, I think lesser mortals than Paula need these techniques even more than her. But I think it's so interesting that people like her have to use techniques and break, you know, big races down into small chunks. And I think it's so interesting. Um, I once heard someone talk about Roger Bannister when he broke the four minute mile. And apparently he was one of the first people to use visualization. And he just managed him, um, imagined himself, you know, getting past the start of the track in under a minute each time. He only had to do that four times. So he just had to imagine the clock every time. And apparently he did a lot of that work on himself. Um, so yeah, it has been around for a long time, but now I think it's, it's become, you know, essential. Yeah. And we hear from uh, multiple runners that have done things that would blow all of our minds. And every single one of them has those moments of self-doubt creep in at some point during their race. All of us do. And yeah. it's really important to have those training skills as well. Um, along with strong quads and 
well-trained hamstrings, you got to have a mind that's going to tell your body to do what it's saying it doesn't want to do. Absolutely. I mean, this was evidence in my last marathon, which was the Brighton Marathon. And um, I'd gone to stay with friends the night before, and my husband had brought me down to Brighton, which is you know an hour, an hour and a half from my house, etc., and got up very early to drop me off at the start line. And literally after two kilometers, I wanted to stop. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was just going, I don't want to do this. I forgot my music. I don't usually run with music, but I, I had that as my kind of backup. And I thought, I haven't got my music. I'm not feeling it. I just don't want to do this race today. And then I just had to say to myself, Lisa, like, how are you going to explain to your husband that you suddenly turn up at home like six hours before he expected you? I mean, he's gone to all this trouble to take you to this race. I had to talk myself through this whole thing and the shame of, you know, disappointing my husband, all kinds of things. And then, of course, got in my stride and ended up, um, you know, rescuing a man at the side of the road who um, was really struggling. Um, and I just said to him, look, are you out of the race or do you think you've still got a little bit in you? And he said, no, I think I can continue. And I just said to him, right, well, you look fine to me. Get up. I said, you know, you're not going anywhere if you're sitting down, but if, you, if you're moving, you don't have to run. You could just walk. Um, and he had a, a former army veteran with him who picked him up at six miles. So this guy got him virtually to 18 miles. Uh, and I thought, wow, you know, you must have felt something for this guy. Because I don't usually pick people up that early in a race. Because if they're that, you know, if they're that bad, six miles, it's going to be a heck, of a heck of a struggle. But I, I picked up loads of people sort of from halfway onwards. So we actually got this guy to the finish. And in between, you know, his wife came along with a pram and she fed us chips. And we just had a, a really fabulous day out. The tears at the end, it was his first marathon, you know, and he did it. And and we just felt, and me and the army vet, I just felt, you know, like we got two medals that day. Like we got his, the guy, the newbie's medal, and we got our own. Um, so it's little moments like that, you know, that are priceless. Um, and just such a wonderful part of the marathon running scene and giving self-belief to people like what i love is because i've done so many i can look at someone and go you look like a finisher to me trust me i know what i'm talking about <laughs> and i can just like talk with such confidence you know and i just say if you come with me i can guarantee you're going to finish and you know i haven't lost anyone yet i really haven't except if someone's been extremely injured like a couple mm -hmm. of times someone's you know torn a muscle or whatever and like i can't get them there but most of the time they just need a little bit of encouragement a little bit of distraction um a little bit of storytelling um and they get there that's awesome so before we let you go we've been going this has been an awesome conversation can you tell us a little bit more about your book and then and your article in the uk runner's world magazine uh foreign marathon oh wonderful thank you and well my husband and i um as well as being keen runners we also keen travelers so we both um, visited almost 100 countries and during lockdown we decided to um, write two books about our experiences so the one's called travel sickness in search of places to be people to see and strange stuff to eat and so that book um, describes a lot of our early adventures but also how i became a marathon runner and then the second book which runners world extracted is travel agents more scrapes japes and narrow escapes um, and in that one we talk about a lot about more of the foreign marathons um, that we ran um, including one where my poor husband had to fish his golden wedding ring out of the bottom of a portaloo. So if you want to read about oh. <laughs> that kind of story, that's in there too. Um, and then my, the book that I wrote um, about um, 
going joining the 100 Marathon Club is called um, Your Pace or Mine, what running taught me about life, laughter, and coming last. Um, so that's got lots more marathon tales in, and also um, lots of stories from the people that I met during my marathon. So it's not just my story, because I think, yeah, I view myself as a as a, the hero of my own life, but every single person I met on my journey was a hero too. And so I didn't want it just to be my experience. I wanted to showcase all the other incredible people um, who made my journey so special. So we will have all of the books linked in the show notes here so people can check them out. Um, and your article in UK's Runner's World magazine. I can't thank you enough for today, Lisa. You inspire me uh, to try to be the badass athlete that you are. Oh, that's such a lovely thing to say. <laughs> I'm going to tape this and I'm going to play it to my husband over and over and over again. No, thank Perfect. you so much. It's been so lovely chatting to you both. And I'm really going to be listening to this um, and really enjoying, um, you know, catching up on all your previous episodes. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I also want to point out that uh, no matter how many marathons you've run so far, you are that many marathons ahead of Fundy. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's hard to <laughs> But I definitely want to do your, your beer run. So um, my friends in Canada, she'll also do it because she is so into craft beer, as she calls it. Do you call it craft beer as well? Yes. Yeah. Oh, you do? Okay. Because yeah. we call craft it something beer. else. Yeah, we call it micro or craft beer. Okay, well, yeah. that she 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 loves that. She's always going around when we we do marathons together, and then she always asks for craft beer. In most countries, I don't know what that is, so it's always so amusing listening to these conversations. So I'm sure she'd love that race. What do you, what do you call craft beer? I'm trying to think what we do. Um, yeah, we do call it. I don't know, micro. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't even know. I just drink it. I don't really like. <laughs> well, that's um, the most important part. Yeah, that is. <laughs> But that's, that's fantastic. I'd love to do that race. Well, thank you and have uh, some awesome training runs this weekend. Wonderful. Thank you. You too. My favorite guests are the um, sneaky badasses. <laughs> she okay. is a sneaky badass. She's a total sneaky badass. I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I finished last, but by the way, I've done 108 marathons and uh, at least two ultras. I'm going to throw in a triathlon, uh, a few triathlons, but, uh, few. you know, a full, tri a full Olympic triathlon. Also, one of the ultras was one of the hardest ones uh, in the world to finish the comrades in South Africa. So, you know, you, whatever. It's it's fine. Whatever. Yeah. So the sneaky badasses, Lisa Jackson, you are on that list without question. That was a great Great conversation. Loved hearing all that she had to tell. We barely had enough time to really uh, scratch the surface on what she does with the mental aspects of her running. But if you listen to what she's accomplished, you can hear in the entire conversation the parts of what she is doing to make herself a finisher. Yeah, I love that. My biggest takeaway is what you really pointed out is that we have to start getting out there and cheering on people at the finish line finish line and also volunteering at races that we aren't taking part in. Agreed. Uh, I would also like to throw out her phrase, which, um, you know, we had a great one the other day with, uh, was that strong legs, strong heart, strong mind. Yep. Uh, and we're going to add to that. It's not the time you set. It's the time you have. And that is such a great mantra to carry with you when you're going into some of these really long runs. Totally agree. That might come in second 
to what she actually threw out during the uh, ultra that she was struggling with in the water, which is noodles and beer. <laughs> noodles and beer. That's a good one. I like that one. Noodles and beer. I can get on board with noodles and beer. Let's not lose sight of the origin that Lisa threw out to us. I mean, she was 30 years old and deciding to make a change. And what I found interesting, because she did not she did not indicate this in the notes that she'd uh, passed over to us, but the level of athleticism with her parents. And I can imagine that might have been intimidating as a child. Yeah. Uh, it may have been what held her back. But what I find most interesting is I think it's actually what helped her take that big step forward. She may not have noticed it in the moment, but it was that perspective of having seen them. I have to imagine that that influenced how she uh, uh, turned into the run that she became. Yeah. And for anybody out there listening who's a beginner's runner, uh, one thing that I noticed that I've been seeing over and over again, when you start running, uh, a lot of people get injured right away because yeah. your body has been sitting uh, at a desk or on the couch for a decade, maybe two decades, maybe three decades, you're going to have some injuries and that's okay. You just pull back a little, get healthy, start back get up again, but don't let those injuries stop you from running. They're just, you know, it's just a little hurdle. It's fine. Slow down. Get healthy again, start back up again. That's the most important point. And it can be frustrating for a new person who is wanting to try and really embrace this. It's frustrating for the experienced runners who have expectations that they have to scale back. Each of us still has to find a way to overcome that because what's, again, most important is that you don't let that be the reason to stop. It's just a, a hurdle to get past. And as Lisa Jackson has showed us, it doesn't matter how fast you're running, doesn't matter how slow you're running, just keep getting out there and put those races in front of you. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Old Crazy Runners. Take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends how much you love listening in. And be sure to go by Strava and join the Old Crazy Runners Podcast Run Club because that's where all us old crazies hang out and that's where we encourage each other to keep getting out there, keep putting in the miles, keep being old crazy runners. <laughs>